They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Hey. Hello, J.D. Rainsford. How you doing? I'm all right, David Hellard. How are you? Oh, well, good, good, good. We've, uh, we've seen it. You're looking, you're looking as rough as, as, as you've been sounding <laughs> these past few days. <laughs> it's not illness, though. It's not illness. It's, it is, um, it's self-inflicted illness in some ways. Short-term illness. <laughs> An STI. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Why don't we just start? Why don't we just start referring it to as STI? I'm sure that won't have any. Picked up an STI last night. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think that could catch on. It's catchy. <laughs> STIs. Um, but do bad as we went out for a drink, Jody and I. Yes. Maybe the I first know. time this year. Yes, I know. It's um pretty crazy pretty crazy time no it wasn't it, we were trying to work out where the last time we went, went for a drink was and i think it was just before lockdown wasn't it potentially um, good but, good night though we went down to city london city runners not the evil ones um <laughs> <laughs> and um got out with tim and k yeah yeah it's good and um they've got but, a good setup there haven't they yeah um it's if you haven't been down too bad as if you're ever in london go what's cool about it like so we we went so tim we've had on the episode an, an episode maybe 100 episodes ago and if you don't know the story of london Sunday runners they created a club where they just ran around the loop of of the, the london of the thames every tuesday every thursday no interval sessions no tempos it was just come and have a run of us and it got bigger and bigger to the extent they thought, well, let's open our own pub, our own bar. And, and they have. But what was great, Tim gave us this little tour of the wolves where he's put up all these images and photos and memories. And like, there's one of his dad as a runner and him as a little boy. It's, it's really cute. Oh, it's a, it, his dad looked like a proper legend as well. He did, he did. It's just like, oh, I was like, could you find a cooler picture of someone running it, 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 it captured everything with a picture of him running as well. Sadly, there were a couple of kids on bikes next to next to. Him yeah, as well, ruined everything. Ruined yeah, it. but but yeah, it was funny because when he said, "Oh, I'll give you the tour," and you're like, "Hmm," it kind of <laughs> looks like one just giant tunnel type thing. It's not much of a tour, but it was it was it was like a it showed us like the hall of fame of all the different people who've been there and stuff like that. It was good. It was really good. It's really interesting because it's. It's, it's set up as a running pub slash cafe, but and, and it's it, it seems as if a lot of the London running communities have used it for Christmas parties, for meetings, drinks, stuff like that. But it's almost also on the Bermondsey Beer Mart, which is where as um, with we've been thinking about doing an event for uh, Beer Belly Running because it's probably the number one pub crawl now in London. It used to be the Monopoly board or maybe the Circle Line which is they're all mammoth and they're all quite tricky to organize. Yeah, especially <laughs> the thing is with something like that is that after the first three or four pubs, 
it's chaotic. With, yeah. I think with the, like with the Bermondsey Bin Mile, it's just one direction. You just got to go in one direction. Yeah. I mean, there's no. You, there's you're no, looking at Monopoly board, thinking, where is Old Kent? What Old Kent Roads is where? <laughs> oh, uh, like there are no tubes anywhere near. We should have started. Why don't we start at Old Kent Road? But um, yeah, the the beer mill now it's great. There can't be many places. That, I mean, this is maybe showing my ignorance or maybe my arrogance for the city. I can't, I can't think of many places in the world that would have something like the Bermondsey, the Bermondsey Mile where it's it's more than a mile but it's essentially under the railway arches because they've been they haven't been used for years and they're owned by british rail and at some point british rail decided why don't we actually use all this space that we think a massive booze fest (laughs) what what we need is we need hundreds and hundreds of stag dudes basically tearing this place up at the weekend (laughs) yeah (laughs) completely and 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 so it's great because there's all these independent brewers and then independent bakers and tim was saying that actually he's got this running cafe and and it really we also interviewed we've got this running pub but we we interviewed um george about he opened up a running cafe in london yeah. near regent street and the, and the struggle with that because it, it's actually it's quite like you need to be nearby and want to go as a runner um but he was saying pretty much all their business is just done on one day of the week where each saturday they just get hundreds and hundreds of people absolutely blitz who then it slowly dawns on them that they're in a running pub, which <laughs> if you're if you're like dressed as a giant penis and you're like 10 pints in, there's suddenly like this is like a, a running pub would strike you as probably desperately uncool, but it just would, wouldn't make any sense to you at all. What I like about this is firstly, I do actually think this is how a lot of do badders get into running. <laughs> just the amount of people like when we've done running events and stuff like that the amount of like drunk people we've spoken to and given details about joining like the the facebook group or listening to the podcast and stuff and then, and then people have said oh yeah i was on like a pub call or whatever when i saw you guys and then i you know joined i i do i do think it's a legitimate recruiting tool is to to find people who are hammered because because he did say that actually there are a lot of some people have joined the club on the basis of turning <laughs> up there on a on a pub crawl one. But I like the idea when you've had a night out. Sometimes you can't really remember exactly what happened, like where you went, and and what you did at certain times, and you kind of piece it together with your memories. And a lot of the time, I think you could be influenced where you might have a slight wrong memory that you suddenly build into your story and becomes actually what you think happened so i like the idea of you go out on this pub crawl and then you look around and there's all these runners around you there's all these pictures of running in the wall and you wake up in the morning you're like maybe i went for a run last night maybe that's what happened maybe i'm now like a fitness god Um, that's why i hurt so much and so maybe it's convincing people that they are runners without ever them ever having to put on a pair of trainers no, no, it's good. It's good. I like the idea of um, like having runs set out from there on on a on a Saturday or, or or on a Friday when you know it's obviously people are pouring in and 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 just try and encourage people there and then to go to to start mm. running with them. You know, because everyone everyone's a bit leery, everyone's a bit boozed up. You can you can get people to do stuff they wouldn't otherwise do. Oh my god, they should have a box of old trainers. 
that's such a good idea because there's no what to do the trainers we no longer use but just having a box where people can put them on and go for a run that's a great idea right we're going to suggest that to tim i mean it would it stink to high hell that section of the bar it would be incredibly (laughs) dangerous Um, (laughs) having having people who have been boozing all day all of a sudden running um lost in london (laughs) do you know what doesn't it i mean like the the other thing was that we saw that was um they were managing to do it in a socially distanced way in terms of the running groups and everything in groups mm. of six and, and stuff like that. And it, and it seemed to work very effectively. And he was saying that actually it works really effectively having, having smaller groups because people are integrating in different ways and it's a bit more intimate and yeah. everything else like that. You're um, forced to meet new people, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's quite good. Um, but wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense to run a version of the Great British Spearathon from there um, or some variation that allows you to do it because they, they they seem to have like the space don't they yeah but the trouble is with something like the beerathon because i've thought about this or beat the barrel when you've got 200 people who are drunk it doesn't matter how big the space is they're going to mix right then also i don't want to do an event where at the end we can't stand up and uh, give out punishments of drinks and give it like a little recap and everyone party on i think it would just be too it would take all of the joy out of it. Uh, but we've got, we've got many things to talk about this week. Oh, okay. Many, many things. I mean, to start with, we're talking about London City Runners and taking shoes there for people to borrow. I have got the bargain for you of a lifetime. Go on. Right, how much do you spend in a year on trainers, would you say? Me? None. <laughs> I don't spend anything. I'm still, I'm still using the boxes of trainers that I had when I, when I worked for men's running. So, well, what if I could offer probably, you? In, normally, I would probably spend, I'd probably buy like one pair of trainers a year or something. Like 100 quid, 100 quid a year. 100 quid a year, yeah. Well, what if I could offer you the chance to own one pair of trainers for only £35 a month? <laughs> <laughs> I know what this is. <laughs> What, I mean, th- minute, doesn't that seem like a this, bargain? This is going to revolutionise running. <laughs> this is absolutely revolutionise running. Why don't you explain what it is if, <laughs> if the listener hasn't already seen this? Oh, I, I don't know whether this is genius or whether it's just the worst thing ever or whether it's... Because millen- you know, millennials, they rent stuff, don't they? Millennials rent stuff. Yeah. People like running. How about renting running shoes? Was it on? I'm trying to find the article now. It is on, yeah. Um, So, on. In some ways, I've done a lovely thing. In fact, I'm just going to quickly find the... There we go. On running. uh, In the news. Where's the article? So, on. In some ways, are doing this a lovely thing. Um, We've always been saying how we've wanted to... We've always said how we want to rent a pair of shoes for a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money per month. But we've we've always said how trainers are incredibly wasteful. Um, we'd never know what to do with the trainers at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, once the old ones, because you don't really want to give someone your crap trainers. And so on have come up with a solution where they've got recyclable shoes. Um, That's good. Which I think is is a lovely idea. And I love the idea as, as, as well of buying a pair of shoes, taking them back, 
and having them replaced or those being reused because actually if we're honest about if, if we look at how recycling needs to work things like bottles for cans it's by not having to completely melt down everything every time and use that huge amount of energy and sorting but actually to wash and to reuse the bits we can and incorporate that into the next product going forward so this is great so they're offering you the chance to to have these trainers for 35 pounds a month and you see so you hire them and whenever you want to take them back they switch them um which it's it sounds great except it's so bloody expensive <laughs> like 35 pounds a month. so if you I, I you need at least one pair of trainers because if you just have one pair you you damage the cushioning because it doesn't give it time to actually expand again and so you need 70 pounds worth for much of trainers at least and you're talking about one pair you're not talking about a trail pair one for the desert one for pbs one for training one for track so can you can you, can you get a new pair every month if you wanted i can't actually find the article now because right, i don't imagine that would be allowed the thing is i this the idea of this is really good because i think when we when we first saw this um I, I said, if you could like hire different types of shoes um, or, or a couple of pairs of shoes at a time for different types of training for different types of year or whatever you do, like imagine if you could hire some vapor flies for three months on this basis, or you had a massive yeah. range of stuff. I mean, everyone would hire the vapor fly, but well, you this massive range of stuff that you could you could hire, um, and you know you don't want to buy the vapor flies, but you just want them for three months or something. Um, or you just want a pair of, you know, um, sort of uh, chunky hokers for a couple of months or, or something like that, even just to test them out, maybe, or something, you know, things like that. Yeah, but something like a desert shoe where you, you're doing a race. You've got, your, you've got your race day shoe or you've got your, I'm going to the Marathon de Sabs. I need a shoe for there, but I don't want to have a shoe with gaiters on that, you know, I've, I've still got my gaited pair. I've done 150 miles in them. They're good to go. Yeah, yeah. I think it's all it's all to do with the pricing of that as well, isn't it? It's just yeah. It's a good it's a good idea. It's just the mechanics of it. I I wonder I wonder whether you know if they're able to explain it a bit further because at the moment, thirty five pound a month for a single brand of shoe is oh. a very difficult, very difficult one to um to do. I mean, the thing is, if you you know, I don't know. I think I wonder if other um, brands can. Come and what we some, what we could do if we should read the contract because it might be it, when they first launched mobile phones they set up some insane contracts where um my my ex girlfriend Sally she she got a phone in 1996 so one of the first people I I knew to actually have not a a brick but a a, a genuine mobile phone yeah and her offer was three minutes and free text for life oh she, my god was it yeah so she she got that sim it's changed now because you need data but they they got to a point where they were offering to buy those contracts for a thousand pounds so it could be with the on trainers that it's th if you if you sign up it's 35 pounds for life so maybe we take a hit now 
for the first 10 years. But in 30 years time, it's going to be the equivalent of like a pound a week. And we're suddenly getting these trainers that they're having to just every like, oh, bloody hell, Dave, another pair. Yep. Here's my pounds. Here's my pounds. <laughs> Maybe the thing to do is to, yeah, is to completely abuse that. I mean, it's a good idea, but you have to completely abuse it because they have to go through that period of disruption, don't they? Like when you first launch a concept you mm. have to like you know rigorously apply it and go there's always going to be a few outliers who who, who take the mick and and, and and do that and we could be those people who do that or some do brothers could be the people who do that and really sort of like rigorously test it or the thing, the, the thing we is, could, the we thing could is, lay some tar down outside their shop but every time you leave the shop your shoes get ruined it's maybe too far. It's maybe too far. Um, but it, so, are they delivered to you? You'd have to go to someone's house where you're seeing it's delivered and tar the outside what, of the house. Are they delivered? That that makes no sense. So then you haven't got how long deliveries take. So then you've got this time without any trainers. Um, I, I, well, I'm assuming it's delivered because where would you go? What? Where would you go? There's no uh, on have their own shops. I don't know how I can, I think so. I don't know how, I, how can I not found this, find this article now? It's because they've created a shoe company called On Running. And if you type, it's like searching for the running. <laughs> how can you, every article about running has the word on in it, often in the headline. So I just can't find the bloody story. What a stupid name for a company. <laughs> Change your company, like make it on double N or something. When we're trying to find the uh, the story so that we can rip apart your business model, <laughs> why, why are you not available? Maybe they've hidden the story from us, they know. Look, 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 I found it. This is Cyclone, and this is the running shoe you'll never own. I mean, it's not a great pitch to start off with. It's a little bit, you know, there's a bit of a pattern. Stop. No, really, you can't have these shoes. Well, just not forever because we need them back. Why? Because they're recyclable. These shoes are made from beans. Yes, beans. Castor beans, to be precise. Running them, return them, and we'll give you new, new beans, sorry, shoes, and repeat, own the run, not the shoe. It's a subscription service for twenty nine ninety five a month. We revolutionised running once, and we're about to do it again. No big deal. Once do you know what they should have called them? Do you know what they should have called them? The menus. The what? The menus. What does that mean? Segwaying into our next story bit that you don't know about yet. Pasta Semenya. <laughs> Castor Semenya, oh, they're made of castor beans. Oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. Get her to sponsor them. Yeah, well, look, here we go. Look, sign up for a, sign up for a monthly fee. Run in the shoe. When the shoes reach the end of their life, around the four hundred k mark, you know your cycling account will send you a new pair. Slip on your used shoes. Send them used pair in the same box. We'll take care of the rest. Did you yeah, think? I mean, it's that. That's it. I mean, <laughs> so actually, you've got the sending back and forth. But it's the whole. It's intended for you to use until the end of their life. So you need to run after four hundred k, because that's what they're saying. Um, and yeah, the, I, 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 this sounds terrible. This sounds a terrible deal. How so basically, on shoes, on running you, shoes, they're not that. They're not like four hundred pound each, are they? Let Let's say that most people buy a pair for a hundred pounds or less. Hmm. So you're looking at. You've got to run. 400k but actually you need a, a you need two pairs to to not potentially injure yourself so you need to run 800k in three months 
So you need to only wear two pairs of shoes and to run. Um, actually, it's doable. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's doable, do you think? If you just wear their shoes and... But then the chances are, if you're someone who, who runs that much, you probably don't change your shoes. Okay. But uh, on to... On to well, do badders. Letters at badboyrunning.com. What do you think? Is this just a ridiculous marketing? Do you think they even care? Are they just trying to get some marketing out of this? And also, shouldn't they just sell these? And do a discount <laughs> off your next. There's too many. There's too many concepts involved. There's. It's either they, they should focus on the idea of a subscription service, or they should focus on the recyclability of them. Yeah. There's, there's, they've, they've put two concepts together, and I think they're trying to use the recyclability to justify the price. Yeah, and surely and it, you just say, and maybe that's because they're. It's probably because they're insanely expensive yeah. for them to have made, and so they're like, how can we sell these for this much? But. Surely the best scheme is, as I did when I was a kid, and return Coca-Cola bottles in Cyprus. You'd uh, you just say, return these shoes to get twenty pounds off your next pair. That simple, right? It all comes down to how good the shoes are. That's the thing. Yeah. It won't. That's that's, well, that's with all of these. Um, all of these. Um, what we, we talked about. I think about this the other day about um, stories that we've talked about that have disappeared. But with any recycling thing, it, it, you know, just because something's recyclable doesn't mean someone's going to buy it. Things, I, I think they're quite a good-looking shoe. They're all white, which is a bit weird, but I, they're quite. I'd wear those casually and just put a bit of paint on them. Anyway, it's not available till autumn 2021, so you can. You've got <laughs> is it not? It. No, it's not even. <laughs> and and we need they need five thousand estimated subscriptions in your region to reach critical mass. So. Wow. And who's going to be, how are they going to get 5,000 people signing up now in the depths of COVID for a shoe that they're not going to get for a year? <laughs> what a stupid mark. Oh, I mean, great PR. Great PR. Yeah, we yeah, need to true. launch our own shoe and do something like that. Well, what we should do is that we say you could listen to the podcast um, just from a monthly fee. If anyone wants to hire my shoes for £35 a month, <laughs> I'll send you a pair of my shoes whenever you've done with the old ones like that yeah. is a bargain for me I i'll do it <laughs> well go on no. custer semenyo i know that you I, we ruined a seg there sorry if you're going to talk about custer semenyo i could have i could have worked that we're gonna have to talk about caster sugar instead now just uh so we've got a seg that, <laughs> that is, is fresh but yeah interesting so caster caster basically is her, she went to the supreme court in switzerland and she's lost, which is sad for her. Um, I think not sad for women, but then I'm not a woman. <laughs> so, but interestingly, they, they basically said because she has testosterone levels that are far higher than the average woman. And in an essence, it's because Semenya has been, is she born with an XY chromosome or X, X or Y? I can't remember now. Um, and so they've said that there is, it's this, this tough situation where you're trying to actually find something that's fair. And in essence, Carcissumenia has just a massive amount of testosterone. And she's just dominated all women who will never be able to beat her because they don't have that testosterone. So I think it's I think it's personally the nearest thing to a fair decision where they say lower your testosterone levels 
and you can compete. And she's gone to court to try and overrule that, and, and she's lost. So, yeah, it's we've got clarity now. It's really harsh on her. Um, thankfully, I think she's, she's now playing football professionally. She's got a career. But, yeah, un- unfortunately, she's the massive loser in this. But actually, I'd, I'd rather she was a loser than all women lose out forever to any female that has abnormally well i, I guess it's and, and this is where the, the interesting thing about this is it, it's, it's probably going to have an impact on future discussions to do with people that do and um, cross from being male to female and you know transgender because this is actually an example they can use going forward and, and saying when males do change to being females like do they have to have reduce their testosterone for a certain amount of time before they can compete um so it, this it's this is an impact for semenya but actually could have quite a ripple what do you think um i think it's one of those ones where that is desperately sad for semenya yeah 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 there's nothing yeah. she can do about it. it's not you know it's, there's nothing you know she that's just the way she was born yeah um, and and i and i you know i can understand why they're saying you know the, the testosterone it's really hard in sport isn't it because you have to mm. how do you create effectively a level playing field and then how can because you know the other thing is that genetics play a big part in mm. how well you do generally and you know this is part of her genetics and mm. it's just it's just unrealistic to just to, to say to someone you have to because of the way your body is you naturally have to you know but then limit your testosterone but then how do you how do you it, I, I think it's just one of those massively difficult decisions that as a sporting yeah. body and and we're we're changing yeah. Yeah. The rules, the rules, and the the public perception of of gender fluidity are, are constantly changing, and um, you know, we're we're having to draw lines, and that's the difficulty. Is where, as a society, we still haven't really drawn a line on what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female, and then having to apply that to sport. That's where it becomes tricky because where you might draw a line societally wouldn't be fair to draw the line in the same position for sport. And so it's, it's, I could see rules changing several times. And actually we almost, there's going to, whatever happens is going to be unfortunate victims. Um, But I I do think we have to protect the rights, the ability of, of just non, oh, I don't even know how to to word it, but I, I, (laughs) I know, I know it's not exactly what you mean. I do think we've got to protect women that, that don't have abnormal testosterone levels and, and give them the ability to compete because it, it, it just, I don't, want, I don't really want sport. I know it's not fair on them to have, if all sports determined by people who have testosterone levels because they've, they've switched or because they've, they've self-identified or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. But, I mean, this is how hard it is. I, I don't really know how to phrase it properly. Yeah, no. Um, I think this is one for. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what people know. Like, so if you write letters of bad boy running and give your opinion, um, or, or stop, you know, let's have a discussion in the in the Facebook group because I just if you if you've done something your entire life mm. and you've not done anything wrong, it's not as if you're a drug cheat or something like that. You've not done anything wrong. You've just you're born as you are born, um, and then. The, they say in order to carry on, you've got to essentially change one element of your 
of your person. Um, uh, you've got to take the tablets a, or, or something else. It's I, I think I as well to put, imagine. especially to, to to have got to this, the High Court, it's put a magnifier on her in about something that is is a deeply personal issue. But I think the other thing is, I think you're right. I think it's not it's not just a case of thinking about this in this particular case. I think it is with an eye on the wider implications of if this ruling had gone through. What would it have meant for? I mean, no, that I mean, that's the that's not necessarily something for the um, mm. for the uh, the court to, to think about, but certainly something for the to the athletics industry as a whole. You know, what is the implication of of of, of her winning this um, on on the rest of sport? Because they mm. there, there seems to be a lot of a lot of confusion or a lot of doubt um, as to as to the right way forward. And so yeah. something like that would, have, I, I think, you know, definitely would have made a massive change to um, how they dealt with this whole this whole situation, um, uh, you know, and whether whether they they're able to do that at this at this stage, because, like you say, the the idea of gender uh, is 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 kind of all over the place at the moment in terms of the thinking. You know, there there is I think there's even discrepancies between different um uh, athletics association different sports associations people are doing different mm. things yeah mm. so who you know who how how do you take the lead in it um and so, the yeah, thing I you will take time for each of them to have parity and maybe they'll never have parity yeah yeah and 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 that's true of if you if you look at a lot of american sports for example there are far more drug takers in baseball and american football because you can get caught once or so and just get a hand slap Whereas in other sports, it's it's not quite as forgiving. Um, yeah, or cycling, you can just you know you keep just keep doing it all the time. <laughs> it's just generally accepted. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Now this is this is in the group a while back, but we we're yet to discuss it. The the male running top to prevent nipple chafing, which oh. looks exactly like a bra. <laughs> is i think it's great i think it's do you know what i everyone was joking about it but i think it's true like a lot of people suffer from um bleeding nipples and that's that's just a genetic thing like your nip like the way that your nipples are and, and how they change it's just there's not it's is there a bleeding nipple gene yes exactly it's no no but it's it's not it's not based on like how how like skinny you are or anything else like that like people have bleeding nipples Regardless of their result, regardless of their side, not just saying, "Oh, if you're fat, you ha- you're going to have bleeding nipples. If you're not fat, you don't have bleeding nipples." So it's nothing to do with size or weight. So, but, but you either have bleeding nipples or you don't. You either suffer bleeding nipples or you don't. There's not much you can do to change it. So, why not? If that, I don't know how the material. <laughs> why works. not create a bra for men? Just for think of the circumference why create of it a as nipple. A bra, like if it, if it stops bleeding nipples, create it as a full a whole top. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Just, why, why is it cropped up? Why stop? I know. Like, oh yeah, we got to this point and we thought, yeah, that looks fine. No one will have a problem with this. I, I think it's completely down to, uh, again, it, it's done for effect, isn't it? They see a guy wearing a bra, essentially, and they found the skinniest bloke they could find in order to do it. But a guy wearing a bra and they're like, that picture is going to end up on the front of everything. <laughs> 
because people are going to talk about it and stuff and and then they'll release a, a vest or something that will actually be a, a, you know do you think more... like is this company going to survive um i don't know if the model is going to survive this really because <laughs> every time people are going to sit i hope i hope he's just a generic um uh, uh what's it called a oh. An April Fool's game. I hope it's a generic stock photo guy and not an actual runner. <laughs> just, because if you see just, him out, he's a guy wearing a bra. <laughs> what percentage of people do you think have this issue? Because actually a lot of it comes down to when it rains or because that, it, it's it's essentially having too much liquid on there, right, that, that causes the density of the top yeah, that then causes yeah. it to rub as you, you move. We need to get a nipple chafe expert on because I mean I thought I really thought I was a nipple expert. I've really spent hours on this, but apparently not the right kind of research. <laughs> Male nipple expert. That's the yeah. thing. That's where you've yeah. been going wrong. Yeah, yeah, Com completely. Comple but I was thinking we could do a do bad top where oh, rather, this is good. Rather than rather than saying it's a problem, we need to embrace this. So I was thinking if we designed a top that had a statue of the Virgin Mary, yeah. where the nipples were the eyes, then <laughs> if your nipples bled, you'd have a, a, a crying blood statue of the, of the Virgin Mary, which, which is a miracle. So you could turn it into a running miracle. And I think that would be something that actually people would, would then want to get bleeding nipples. I think that's good. I did try sketching out that design. And so you'd have to have a very big forehead, wouldn't you? Like, yeah, exactly. I, have, I was going to say, you can't, you can't have the full picture of the thing, otherwise you need to have nipples that are inordinately close to each other. <laughs> well, do badders. From bleeding nipples, how are we going to segue this? <laughs> I mean, right, to a man that runs everything topless because he's embarrassed about wearing bras and he doesn't want bleeding nipples, it is the incredible Ryan Atkins. So do bad as you've got an absolute treat for you. I've been wanting to get Ryan on for ages, and then I just I think I, me I messaged him a long time ago and then completely forgot to follow up. But you probably know Ryan as one half of the Posh and Becks of the OCR scene. He's won various <laughs> world championships. He's, uh, he's also started doing ultra running, so so many topics you can discuss. But welcome on the podcast, the incredible Ryan Atkins. Yay! Yay! <laughs> yeah. How you doing? Good, good. Just um, just living the you know coronavirus life, uh, the altered world that we now live in, and um, yeah, trying to make sense of it all. I guess. Photos I've seen about you, and want to know about you. Seem to live quite a rural, um, kind of countryside lifestyle. Anyway, have you just continued on with your training, the two of you, in this time? Yeah. Well, actually. Um, when everything started, I was actually on a, a bike packing trip in northern uh, northern Canada on the Hudson's Bay. Uh, in it would have been end of Mar end of February, early March, and so we kind of I guess the whole you know pandemic kind of started while we were on that trip, um, and we were you know out of outside of contact with the rest of the world for ten days, and so when we you know, got out of the bush, so to speak. Um, we emerged into a very different world, and so it was a bit of a um, bit of a case of like, 
a little bit of disbelief because, you know, we were just hearing this, like, secondhand news from people that, like, oh, yeah, like, they shut the border down and, you know, the whole oh. world has gone into hiding and things like that. And we're like, yeah, has it really? Or are you just being dramatic? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, the rumor that Glastonbury Festival or something. So how, how long were you out of touch for? Um, um, about 10 or 12 days, yeah, we were out of touch. So it, I guess it, it, like, kind of started, like, on, like, the second day that we were gone. Um, like, there had been, you know, we knew of the virus propagation in Wuhan. Um, but, like, at that point, it hadn't really reached, you know, any other countries or anything. Uh, and then it really did kind of touch down, and all the countries started going into, you know, lockdown at that point. So, um, did you, yeah, did you turn kind of up in your first village? Did you find us at the, at the first village and everyone was wearing face masks and you just thought, holy shit, <laughs> what's this? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, like, we finished. Um, so we were up in, like, indigenous communities on Hudson Bay, and these, these communities are, A, you know, very remote, like, and they have about, you know, 200 people living in them. Um, it's very small, very removed, and... Uh, like, we're just kind of riding through, meet a couple of locals and keep going. And those guys hadn't really realized anything was happening either. And, um, it, like, I think all those villages, uh, communities still hasn't, you know, had any, any cases or anything. Cause it's really mm. easy for them to shut down, um, contact. Uh, so they were, they're kind of like not that worried. Um, but when we actually got to like the first, you know, white, um, community at the end of the ride and we like reached, uh, the first paved road um, on the trip. Then I like the first thing I did was go to a grocery store, and everyone's like, everyone's just that's like no one's talking to each other. It's like everyone's walking on pins and needles. Like everyone's like kind of avoiding each other all awkwardly. And and here I am, like I've got like my you know riding clothes on. I haven't showered in two weeks, and I'm just like I look like a windburned face, and I look like you know basically I've gone through the Armageddon and. Uh, everyone's just, like, giving me these awful, like, <laughs> stare-downs, like, who are you? Like, do you have coronavirus? And I'm just kind of like, uh, where are the pickles? You know, like, <laughs> people, like, <laughs> random questions. And, um, yeah, I hadn't really, I definitely didn't flew into the severity of, of everything until we started driving back home. And it was a, it was a three-day drive back home from the end of this ride, about, you know, maybe close to 4,000 kilometers. Um, because Canada is pretty big. And um, so, yeah, on the way home, like, all the rest stops were, like, either shut down or, like, you couldn't use the washrooms or, um, like, all the highways were, like, totally devoid of people and stuff like that. So we started kind of getting that slow introduction of how serious things really were. So, yeah, I definitely had to take a different... Were you in the car on wash then for four days following a 12-day... Michael. No, we we did when we finished. We uh we stayed a night at the at a motel in like the the town we finished in, and we were able to like shower and sleep and stuff. But yeah, and we just and, hit the road. And and how? Because I've got a, quite a few friends who are professional athletes or you know have been affected by by lockdown. But as as a you're a couple of two professional athletes. So, have you got like a furlough scheme or a government support um, scheme or have you just had to fall back on your reserves? 
Um, well, like, so Canada has been pretty great in terms of, um, you know, giving people, uh, I don't know, you know, the money when they lose their jobs and stuff. Um, but for Lindsay and I, so about half of our income is from prize money and the other half is from like sponsors and stuff. So we lost like, I don't know, about half or maybe 40% of our income, um, with prize money, but like prize money is, it's kind of like a weird situation because you don't, it's not like a guaranteed income thing. It's mm. not like, it's, mm. it's, it's kind of like this gray area. Um, and then we were still getting, you know, uh, income from sponsors. So like we kind of just basically, we didn't apply for any of the government, um, you know, uh, initiatives because we figured that, well, a, like, I think that money needs to go to people that really need it, first of all. Mm-hmm. And B, um, I thought that they're like, they're like, oh yeah, we like, you apply for it and it like, it shows up like, you know, right away. Like they're really eager to give it out. But then like the tax man checks into like everything afterwards. So um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, sweet. Like free money from the government and like taking it. Um, a lot of people, what's happening is now like, the government's like, oh, like actually you didn't qualify for it or whatever. And they're like basically taxing them, you know, whatever they received from the government. And we didn't want that to happen either. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an ideal situation, but, uh, yeah, we kind of like a bit fell back on our reserves and things like that, but also just, there's been a lot less expenses too, um, less Mm -hmm. travel, less, like we haven't been flying anywhere. Um, us driving. I took one of my, I took the car off for insurance because I wasn't needing to drive it. So like, uh, definitely lost income, but like maybe saved money in other areas. So it wasn't like mm. as bad as it could have been in a way. And how, how, because the majority of the races do happen towards big money ones. They happen towards the end of the summer and the fall. Are you, are you both mentally pairing and, hoping that that's going to happen or have you, have you written off 2020? I'd say I'm somewhere in between those two things. Um, and there's a, there's actually a Canadian series, which this is the first year they're, um, they're really hyping it up. Uh, and it's only three races. And now those have been postponed till October. All three races are in October. And those look like they're almost definitely going to happen. Cause like, um, the pandemic is relatively controlled in Canada and there are like, mm-hmm. events happening and things like that. Um, numbers are way down, like Canada's pretty spread out. So it's like easy to avoid people, I guess, in a sense. Um, so we're, I, I'm pretty convinced that those Canadian races will happen, which would be nice. Uh, but I'm less uh, hopeful that any of the U S based races um, will happen, which is like, you know, that's where a lot of, that's where like the U.S. National Series happens and that's where the North American Championship would happen and uh, Ultra World Champs was supposed to happen in the U.S. this year. So like there's a lot, lot of those, you know, championship season races happen in the U.S. and it's such, um, <clears throat> such a disaster there right now uh, that things just keep kind of going backwards in terms of uh, progress and suppressing the virus. So it's... Um, yeah, not a lot of hope there. Although in the, the strange thing about the States is 
locking down doesn't necessarily seem to be correlated to how bad the virus is in a, in a state. So it could be if all the right. races happening in Florida, but go ahead, no matter, even if there's no one alive in the state, there'll just be the governor saying, yeah. hey, hey, we're cool. Let's have a race. Come on down. Yeah. But you might, you yeah, might yeah, have totally. it. Never know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that puts us in a really awkward position because if you're going to a state that has high numbers and has, mm. um, you know, the high probability of, of contracting the virus, then like, on the one hand, it's our job to, to race, but on the other hand, it's like also our job to have lungs that are functional and, um, you know, perform. And if we go and <laughs> get the Definitely virus, job not to die, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's not really worth it in a sense. So, yeah. Now, one of the things that you, you popped up on my feed again recently was for, is it called Everesting? Yeah. <laughs> have you heard about this, J.D.? <laughs> Yeah, I've heard about it. Pretty cool. <laughs> now, Jody, do you know do you know this phrase? You're already gone. Um, so basically, Ryan, on the podcast, we have this thing called summiting. No, I say, which... I say, sorry, I, I was muted then. I, <laughs> I have, I, I thought I'd heard of it, but then I thought it was something dirty. So <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe you should, maybe you should explain it. Ryan, just to give you context, on the podcast we have quite a lot of our own. Um, Lexi- uh, lexicon and phrases and and one of them is summiting oh. which is is summiting is where you manage to to get your your end away during a race um but typically okay. do it up a hill so um when i heard about everesting everesting i was like wow is that like a a gangbang mid-race or something but <laughs> given that yeah. given that you're married you know I, i'll assume it's not but um yeah let yeah. for the listener that doesn't know hit us with the facts yeah, so totally. Um, Everesting is where you try to accumulate the, you know, the vertical gain of the height of Everest um, by doing repeats of a hill. So, I mean, you could do... Uh, Everest is 8,848 meters high. So, if you had um, a 1,000-meter hill, that would be 8.8 laps, you know. Um, if you had a 100-meter hill, it would be, you know... 800 or whatever. Um, so you can kind of almost do it anywhere with a reasonable amount of elevation around. You can go out and do it on one step in theory. Do really? <laughs> Has anyone done that? 8,000 one meter steps? Yeah, uh, probably. I don't know. People will do all sorts of crazy things. <laughs> and, and, do you, and do you have to replicate the loss of oxygen as you get higher? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you get. Every every thousand meters you gain, you put another face mask on. So it's just <laughs> <laughs> such a safe sport. <laughs> by the time by the time you're done, you look like a mummy. So you're. <laughs> and yeah, is, this, so, is this is it quite new as a concept? Um. So yeah, the history of everything. It was. Uh, I think it was like the the guy. I want to say it was like. Edmund Hillary's like grandson was training to go climb Everest. Um, so he's the guy, like Edmund Hillary's the first guy to, to summit yeah, yeah. Everest. And so his grandson wanted to like go do it. So to train for it, he kind of came up with this concept of, oh, I should just like do the same vert like, as a good training kind of effort. Um, and I think that was in the 90s. So it's been around for a while. 
Um, but it's actually been pretty, a lot more popular to do on a bike. Um, so mm. yeah, you just find the hill on your bike and you just ride repeats and it's like a good, a good training day. Um, I guess if you want to go climb Everest, obviously. Uh, and so it's, you can do it on a bike as training, whereas to do it by foot, got to be doing some crazy race for that to be your training. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'd be a lot to slot in for a training session. But, um, yeah, there's a few rules that if you want to do everything that, like, people should know about. Mm. Um, for one, like, you have to do it on – so there has to be a Strava segment of a hill. Um, okay. And you, have, and you have to do repeats of that segment until you reach the, the, the vert. So, oh, so you can't switch hills? Count, no, for it to count as an official, like, Everest thing – you have to do the same hill over and over and over and over and over. Oh. Over. So, so there's then, like, there's like, yeah, there's that. <laughs> so, and could you, could, and does it have to be on the same line as well? Could you just go, could you shimmy, for example, up and down as you go along a ridge? Um, no, I don't think so. It has to be, it has to be like when you upload your activity to Strava, the straight line has to like the high segment has to record um mm. you know for you do it so like yeah if there's a hill with a bunch of switchbacks that's fine but as long as you go up and down the same switchbacks you know every time and so um, what why did this kind of pique your interest then um yeah it's a good question like well i actually really wanted to go and run the vermont long trail which is uh a long distance hiking trail it's about 470 kilometers, I think. Um, and it runs the length of Vermont, like north to south. And um, so I'd been kind of training for that. And it's it's only like super close to where we live now. Um, but they kept extending the border closure to the U.S. So I like literally couldn't get to it to go run it. And I'd been training for it. And I was like really feeling strong, been doing a lot of vert and stuff. And I was just kind of bummed that I couldn't get there to go do it. So I started like kind of thinking about other stuff and whatnot. And then it just popped in my head, like, why don't I just go do this Everesting thing? And so I kind of did. And did you take time to research best? Do you have a, a strategy on what you thought the best hill was and why? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty like a pretty analytical guy. Like I, uh, went to school for mechanical engineering and like, I love data and learning <laughs> out and those kinds of things. So I was like doing all sorts of research and just like based on like how I, you know, how I run and how I climb hills and how I thought things would go. I tried to seek out like, yeah, an ideal hill. So what I found out was that the fastest climbing rate, um, for people who are like setting BKs or whatever, uh, is done around 35, it's like 33% to like 40 something percent grade. So like super steep. And the fastest downhill running speeds have been, uh, like the stain downhill running speeds are done around, around 20% grade, like 22 ish. So I found a hill that was 26. It was kind of like somewhere in between the two. Um, and I figured that was a pretty good compromise because I could, I could climb fast and accumulate the vert pretty fast, but I could also run down pretty fast 
but it wasn't so steep that my legs would get completely smashed from running down the hill. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because that's a level of steepness that is pretty hard yeah. not to take impact. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so I just kind of like chose that hill, and it, the one I did was 250 meters of vert per, per lap, and each each lap was about just under a kilometer of distance. So, um, oh, wow, so you're doing it in less than a marathon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm um, climbing, so, but I mean, I did up and down, so I did 68 or 69 kilometers. Oh, okay, of course, yeah, 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 okay. And, I mean, how did you yeah. find it? Was do, do you think, if you could have chosen a longer hill, would you have done? Maybe. It's hard to say. Like, I think the hill I chose was pretty perfect. If I could have extended the hill I was on, um, maybe I would have by, like, it would have been nice if it was maybe 300 meters high or 350. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't, like, it, it's hard to really fault the hill. Like, it was pretty perfect uh, in terms of, like, everything, in terms of, like, steepness, in terms of footing, in terms of um, where it was. It was actually kind of a hot day when I did it, so I think that would be, like, the biggest thing I would have changed. Um, it was hot, and I was running into a headwind on the climb. Um, so, like... That kind of sucked. I was like, <laughs> you're fighting against the wind the whole way, and then it's pushing you downhill faster than you want to be going. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the ideal day, but, like, it's been a really hot kind of uh, summer here. So it's been... How, how long did that take then? Uh, 11 hours and 19 minutes. I did it. Oh, God. And what was the record before? <laughs> 12 hours and 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. man. So you took a good chunk out of it, good 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, good, almost an hour out of it there. So, and and yeah. was, your, was your pacing fairly even? Yeah, absolutely. My first four hours, I was running about 17-minute laps, and then that just crept up to – I realized I'd, if I wanted to, like, break the record, I'd have to stay, like, under about 1950-minute laps. And my, like, lap time crept up to about 19 minutes and 20 seconds. And it stayed right around there, like, the whole time. So it never, it, like, I, it never really, it was within 20 seconds of that, like, 19, 20 um, time, like, the whole time. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very consistent, other than the first couple hours, which were a bit fast. And do, do you yeah. think... Doing things like um, Tough as Mudder and also the fact that OCR does tend to be constantly transitioning from one to the next, do, do you think that put you in good stead for just having to be constantly up, then down, then up, then down? Um, yeah, I think so, uh, for sure. I think that also just not being like a road, like being more of like a mountain runner and more of like a, I guess I might describe myself as like a, runner or like a strength athlete um probably helps because at no point are you like was are you really running fast you're never really like opening up and like using your stride or like your efficiency of running which a lot of people who are you know more flat runners or maybe like cd ultra runners they they have this tendency and this like desire to like really start opening up and like mm. using their speed which like 
in something like that is a bit of a mistake because you're only really opening up in the sense and then you're just pounding your legs even more. And then if you try to do it in the climbs, you're going to like overcook yourself. The climb was pretty steep. Like I would, I would, uh, I would power hike stuff that was like over 25% and I would run stuff that was under, um, like the whole way up. So yeah. And we're using pretty, pretty steep. Yeah, I used poles, um, the whole time. Basically they were awesome. Freaking love poles. <laughs> They're great. And and how did you how did your body react? Did you did your quads die, or which which elements were which parts of your body were feeling destructed the most? Um, I think just my I, my stomach started getting pretty upset by the end. But um, yeah, that was about it. Uh, my legs felt good, and um, like I was obviously sore the next day and like two days after. But while I was doing it, I never really got. Uh, I never really got sore. I, I think I, I think I honed in on like the perfect pace for me mm. pretty early on, and likewise was able to just like kind of cruise right around there recently. And do, do you think that record will stand for quite a while now? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? It's impossible to say. Like, well, that's, really I think if... I think it's the type of record that if lockdown, if we come out of lockdown quite quickly. Will will stay for a long, long time because at the moment it seems that people who are in ultra ultra distances are just desperate to have some some achievement. They want some kind of like <laughs> finish line medal equivalent, and so they're yeah. all taking on these crazy challenges now. True. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it takes. I think absolutely someone like you know John Albin or like. A, Julian Tournay or like someone like that could come along and beat my record tomorrow. Like I think like they would have to, it have to work, but they could absolutely do it. Um, but also that, uh, yeah, they would have to want to do it, put the work in and do it and find a good route. Um, and like people just aren't interested in that. Uh, so yeah, who knows? Well, kind of going back then to before, trail running and ultra running uh, what when did you first get into the ocr scene um i think it was 2013 so i uh i did a couple races and um yeah started discovering it and 2014 i think was the year i did first year i did spartan world champs and john won that year and i was second and uh from there, it was kind of like a slow transition towards like more racing and less, um, less you know, serious adult growing things. <laughs> and were you, were you, had you been very good at sports prior? Yeah, so I mean, before that, I was uh, doing a lot of mountain bike racing, cross country. Um, I was like kind of like my main, my main thing and my main excitement. And uh, like before that, I was. Uh, doing like unicycle trials and mountain unicycling and I've, I've always been like very active and very sporty I guess um always finding something that excites me to go do and to go kind of I really like the process of like improving I guess and that that just like gets me super fired up of like oh well now I can I can run up the hill of 10% faster or if I can you know, do more pull-ups or whatever it is that, you know, 
marker that determines success in a sport. I love, like, breaking that down and, like, improving all those individual elements. So OCR was, like, really awesome for that because there's so many different things you can do and ways you can train and ways you can improve yourself and your fitness. And so uh, I was able to, like, do that, and I love it. Because I, I just surprises me that I wouldn't have thought mountain bikers would necessarily transition into OCR that easily. <laughs> why, yeah, why, do um, why do you think that, David? <laughs> well, because you know, it's a, no, it's, it's a zero impact sport, really, isn't it? Because um, you're you're not doing the running, which is so much a part of obstacle racing, but then don't really have upper body strength in the same way either. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I was always a mountain biker who had a bit more upper body strength than the average, and um, and I think I was just like a naturally a good runner. So I think that the mountain biking actually was good training for me specifically because it teaches you how to like run fast on technical terrain and teach you how to like read the terrain because you're you're going way faster on a mountain bike than you would running. Mm. Um, so you're able to like negotiate, you know, gnarly terrain. And then you're just building your engine, which, um, like, having a big aerobic engine is a good thing, whether you're mountain bike racing or, you know, doing OCR. So, uh, and I think you can actually build your engine way better on a bike than you can running because there's so much impact in running. Mm-hmm. And people are always, you know, it's really easy to get injured when you run a lot. Um, I mean, the most elite runners in the world are maybe running – 14, 16 hours a week, and that's it. Like, sure, they're doing 100 miles, but mm. in that they're only doing that 100 miles in 14 hours of running. Um, whereas 14 hours a week training for a cyclist, that's pretty, like, basic. That's pretty beginner level. It's, like, not that – it's not really that much. Um, so, likewise, you can just put in way more time uh, on the bike and, than you could on running. So it's actually, I think, a better method to improve your aerobic ability. Have you been using cycling throughout, from then till now then, to, to improve your training still? Or have you had to switch more to uh, running? No, totally. Um, I do a pretty good mixture. And actually this year I've been biking more than I have um, since I started racing OCR. And I've, I've been improving across the board in my running um, from all the cycling. I think like my body responds really well to the like training and then I'm able to and I've kind of learned how to transition that bike training to run speed um like in a pretty effective and like quick way um so I'm pretty psyched because like it's been a really cool experiment uh for myself and I and I love I love biking it's kind of fun so I'm able to do more of that uh yeah and are you, have you used because Jody and I are we don't really cycle at all. Jody, Jody's a nine man uh, athlete now or an attempting one. But um, <laughs> when you're training for, for things like ACR, are you using the same building blocks, the kind of same concepts in running, are you using those concepts for the bike? So are, are you still doing your, your intervals and your tempo cycles? Or is it very different in how you, you train to try and get fitness right for running? Um. Yeah, so actually a lot of the concepts in biking are the same as they are in running, um, like all the interval training and kind of training your, your base system, kind of trying to avoid too much like 
really uh, explosive training early on in your training block so you don't like peak too early. Like everything's everything's very similar. And so, um, and then the one thing with like like biking is if you if you stand up on a bike going up a hill, it's like almost the same muscle recruitment as running up a hill. So like if you do a lot of biking uphill, standing up, it's like you're basically just doing the same thing as running uphill, but you can do way more of it. Um, and so then if I take that, those concepts and those intervals, and then mm. I sprinkle, I like, I mix in like certain, certain types of training as running and certain types of training as biking, I'm able to like increase the aerobic load while like maintaining the same like joint impact like load of, of the running part. And I'm also able to, like, I find I'm able to be more, like, psyched on running. Because um, if I just run every day, all day, then I love running. But after a while, it's kind of like, mm. okay, like, that's cool. But if I'm, like, doing half my training as biking and half my training as running, I'm, like, going on different trails. I'm working on different skills. I'm, like, you know, cycling with one group of friends and um, running with another group of friends. So it's kind of, like, it kind of really increases and like maintains the psych for mm. for both sports whereas uh yeah if you're really focused on running it's easier to just kind of blow yourself out and, and have you found that there are some of those sessions that you think you have to re- maintain in running or do you think all of the different training sessions are interchangeable from one to the other no there's actually yeah good question there's um so for instance like in biking, you can do things in training that you can't do in running. Um, like for instance, you can in in running. So in biking, you use power to like monitor your training. So it's measured in watts. So like for instance, my like threshold power is like around 380 watts. That's like the power I can maintain for an hour. But I can like I can bring that number up to like over a thousand watts. Um, when I'm sprinting or going like as hard as I possibly can. So like over triple of my thresholds, whereas in running, you can only go like my threshold running speed is around like a three 20 minute kilometer. Whereas if I go, if I try to run as fast as I physically possibly, you know, sprinting kind of can, I can maybe only go like maybe a, I don't know, two forty kilometer. Like I don't do it very often, so I don't know exactly, but um, it's like, it's like not that much faster. Mm. So you can actually but you can actually go way, way, way harder on a bike than you can running. So you can do these like massive spikes in output um, for high and then come back down. Whereas in running, you can't really do that. Um, so you're able to do like a lot of, like you're able to do short intervals on biking or you can do like rides like at your threshold and then for like a minute and then go like double that power for a minute for, for like, 10 seconds and then come back for a minute, things like that, that you can't do. You can't replicate those in running. So, like, I obviously do those ones on the bike because you can only do them on the bike. Um, And then for running, I find that, like, there's no – the biggest thing is kind of like your stride and your stride efficiency. So I try to do a couple runs a week where I'm running fast and, like, efficient and I'm really focusing on my form Um, because I find if I do at least – you know, maybe 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers of that type of running per week, mm. um, then it, ma- it maintains that muscle memory of, like, how mm. to run fast and how to run efficiently. 
and then uh, and then you don't lose that. So yeah, it's kind of like there's some workouts you can only do running, and some you can only do biking, and then some you can do for either. Like for instance, um, like like kilometer repeats are like a really good running workout. So like you run one kilometer um, hard, and then you take like maybe a two minute rest, and then you repeat that. So you're running, you're on your interval of where you're working is about you know three minutes on, and about you know maybe two minutes off, and you repeat that you know, whatever, five or ten times. And you can do the exact same workout biking. You can go on for three minutes, and then you can go off for three minutes. And it's like same, same effort. Your heart rate is, like, the exact same. Um, some of the muscle recruitment is different, uh, but, like, a lot of it's very similar. So um, Yeah, I was going to ask, are you, are you, is your body changing subtly? Do, do you think that you are... Some develop muscles are developing slightly more than others and, and some reducing because of it or because you've got the split, do you think you keep that balance? Um, yeah, I think you keep a pretty good balance. Uh, I think if anything, it makes you a more rounded kind of, mm. you know, all around athlete because you're not like, if you only run, you're only going to develop those running muscles. And if you only bike, you're only going to develop those biking muscles. But if you do both and then you do like, a bit of physio and kind of um, mobility stuff, then you can really, you know, have strength in a lot of different areas and different planes of motion. And I think that's what makes, like, a, a healthy runner, someone who's not constantly getting injured or having um, issues like that. Which so, is about like, 2% of the people that listen. <laughs> All the rest of us are constantly injured and running way too much. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Physio is really important. Like I do, um, I do physio exercises probably three or four days a week. Uh, and it's like nothing insane or super intense, but I try to just like take the exercises that I can remember and that I feel like have the biggest benefit for the time they take, and then I just like, keep doing those. Um, and what what type of things? Like a single leg squat and box jumps. That totally. that. Yeah, yeah, like single leg squats, box jumps, um, a lot of balance exercises, uh, resistance band things, um, leg lifts, uh, yeah, like core um, squats. Squats are really good. It, like, you don't even have to, you don't even, like, a lot of people like squatting super heavy and stuff, and I, I, don't, I don't really do that. I just do, like, high rep, low weight, and um, it's, like, really good for kind of like knee stability or um, lots of exercises where you're moving in like multiple planes. So like maybe, you know, a single hand, like uh, dumbbell, the overhead press kind of things, um, things like that. So, Cause, yeah. cause how would you say you've, you've changed as an athlete over the last six, seven years? Oh, that's, whew, how have I changed as an athlete? That's a wonderful question. I think, um, I don't know if I really, <laughs> I don't know how much I have changed in that. I feel like there's, there's like, there's concepts in training that are like almost more like laws and like immortal and things that I have like developed, uh, that I, I, I hold true to my heart that I haven't changed at all. Like for instance, working on, on aerobic engine, I think is like the biggest key to success in endurance sports. Mm. Um, and doing doing those like long hard efforts, uh, super important. And um, 
So I've like never stopped. I've been doing those for 10 years. So it's like those haven't changed like even a bit. But um, I think I've gotten a lot smarter in terms of like resting and recovering and listening to my body and um, also knowing when to back off. Like the other the other week, I was feeling just super dead, super tired, super beat up, and I had been like training pretty hard. Um, and I just took two days where I was just, just didn't do anything, like trying to move as little as possible for two days. And after those two days, I you know I went for a run and I felt I felt good again. So I was like. Whereas before I would have just, I would have seen like, oh, I'm getting tired. And then I would have thought, oh, I need to train more. I need to train harder or I need to like stop being such a wuss and like, you know, get, get better. And then that would just become like a never ending cycle of negativity. And then eventually you're overtrained and like your whole season kind of in the garbage. Um, Whereas now I'm able to like step back, look at it and say like, I'm just going to rest and get better. What's your, yeah, what's, your criteria, what's your criteria for adding something new to your training? I mean, I've looked, I've looked at lots of different articles about you, and they're all about the 27 different things that you do, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which makes everyone else look absolutely pathetic. Oh, yeah, ice, ice axe climbing, chopping wood, all those things. What, what, what's your kind of – I mean, like you, like you said there, that was really interesting, saying that you know, you, the, the main aerobic engine forms the basis of your training for, 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 you know, for, for decades. But what, what do, what's the kind of criteria for adding something new? Why, if you see something, you think, oh, that, that's a good idea. Do, do you have a criteria for that, or is it just based on feel? Totally. Um, yeah, so, I mean, if I – well, first of all, I think there's, like a, a, like, a bullshit factor where – you can kind of like look at something and say like, well, that's totally dumb and I'm not even going to try that. Like, and you have, and like that takes a little while to, uh, <laughs> to kind of develop, I guess. But yeah. so like, there's some things you've done. Are there some things you've done for a while? Like when you, you, when you, <laughs> that's, that's going to be my like, next question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which ones were you doing that you then thought, what am I doing with this copper band? And, why am I throwing a javelin every day? <laughs> totally. Oh, my goodness. Like, luckily, I don't think I've ever really fallen into any any traps where I've, like, thought, like, oh, well, that's a really cool idea. Like, maybe I should eat, like, earthworms for a week. Make me, like, I read this article on Instagram, and, like, this guy who's an expert in something, like, said this. And so, like, I'm going to just totally change, like, uh, I don't know. Was it Earthworm Jim? Was that the person who told you? Earthworm Jim. Yeah, there's like so much. There's so much crap out there, and like, and you can like look at it and say like, no matter, it doesn't matter who you are or how many followers someone has that like says you should do it. Like, take a like good solid look at it and be like, that is. Um, so if I look at it and I don't say that is ridiculous, and I say, huh, maybe like, maybe there's like an element of that that like could be kind of cool, like, could be effective. I'll, like, introduce that into my training in, like, a small way, like, maybe once a week or, or something like that and um, see how it feels, uh, kind of, like, just do, like, a little experiment and keep it going for a week or two or three, and then I'll try to, like, retest myself. So I have all these, like, running routes or um, ways of, like, testing myself based on time. Um, 
And so I'll like retest myself or see how I feel, or maybe that like niggle in my knee is now gone or something like that. Um, so if I do it, I introduce it, and it's like we can do it, that even with physical stuff. They say the wood chopping. Say, would you, say, say, would you do that with things not related to the necessary that element of fitness? So say you decided to do more push-ups, would you then test your running against that as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's also like when you say like chopping wood or like doing push-ups or rock climbing. There's also like a a human fun factor I find that like mm. if you do something and you really like it um, and it's like brings you a lot of joy then I don't think even if it doesn't we, we know what you're saying in, like, we hear you we training. understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and then you're both <laughs> maybe keep doing it <laughs> exactly um, yeah so I think that the, there's a lot of different factors like to look at uh but if it helps me in my training, then I'll like keep doing that thing. And if it doesn't help me, but I really love it and I find it like makes me more happy or more peaceful or whatever, then I'll keep doing it. And if it like really doesn't help me in any way, then I'll just stop doing it. Like so it's kind of like a never-ending kind of fluid uh, experimentation process for me. Because in, in terms of the races that you've you've done well at, I mean, for one, you seem to be an incredibly unlucky racer to a certain extent in that undefeated at Battle Frog, that goes down. Um, the best at Tough, Toughest Mudder, that goes down. Um, I mean, how how do you, what's your view on how OCR's changed? And, and have you found it frustrating, the fact that you're, you're trying to earn a living from this and, and businesses keep on popping? Um, no, I mean, it doesn't, I don't find it frustrating, I guess. I just think I'm like, I love, I love doing it. And as long as I can keep doing it, I will. And, um, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it makes it sound pretty unlucky. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I just, I, oh, yeah. Thank, thanks for reminding me. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to have to go see my therapist again. Um, <laughs> No, like, yeah, I think I just, I think I'm more, more lucky for the opportunities that I have had. And even if they haven't lasted indefinitely, it's still like, just awesome. Yeah. And and have you, do you go into each year with, um, because there, there is quite a variation now, and, and, and even more so when Toughest Matter was around, between the races that you could do. And... There's some of them, you know, a bit more random. So Spartan, you're always going to have the spear throw, some other elements that do mean that the best athlete won't always win. Um, some of them, like the, the World OCR champs, you, you know that John's going to be there just running his legs off. And then you've obviously got Toughest Mudder, which is sometimes huge money, sometimes less. Like, how, how have you gone about year to year prioritizing what to go for and also how to train for those yeah so i mean i usually just my kind of overarching concept is like usually the the races that have the most prize money at them are usually the most competitive and i just i want to race the most competitive events um and i want to earn a living doing it so it only makes sense that i do those events um i basically look at yeah i've in the last few years, I've kind of that has meant the U.S. National Series, um, 
which is traditionally like five races across the U.S. And then that's meant uh, like OCR Worlds, um, North American Championships, uh, like Ultra World Championships, Spartan World Championships, and um, yeah, kind of like, you know, there's like maybe 10 or 12 races throughout the year that are uh, have good prize money, have good competition. I know there's going to be a lot of people at. I know that they're... Uh, and then I just try to train for those. And sometimes, like you said, there's like a massive variance. Like one year I did, like I think, three or four toughest mudder races. And then I was doing like 3K races and I was doing 24-hour races. Like just massive kind of variance in in the events that I was training for. Um, so you kind of... I kind of had like let something go like in terms of my performance so there'd, there'd be events where I would just use them as training because I knew that I'm racing so much or I'm racing such you know such like opposite uh, events in terms of like the demands of my body that I can't be 100% at every ra- race so I would just say like oh this this like whatever Spartan super in Pennsylvania I'm just going to like I'll just rock up and just race it and race as hard as I can, but I'll be like, I will put like zero care into how I do on that race. And because I've got, you know, an eight hour race the next weekend that I want to, I've been training more specifically for or whatever. And it works better, you know, later on in the season to be fast at the eight hour stuff at this point and maybe quicker at the beast length stuff then and stuff. And so, yeah, and just, how have you how have you adapted so, training towards each of those distances? Then do you do, do you almost have a, a training plan that grows in the longer stuff throughout the year, or are you because for a while you became Mister Mister Toughest Mudder, like that was the big cash one that you were untouchable at. Were you were you training towards long, long, long the whole year round, or were you just naturally better at those distances from the standard training you were doing? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been, like, just naturally better at those longer events. Um, I really like just, like, hurting, I guess. <laughs> it's, like, masochistic <laughs> as that sounds. I really enjoy, like, like, when you're racing for an hour or two hours, it's, like, you have a bad day, then like you're kind of screwed. But if you're mm. for eight hours, it kind of just comes down to like who wants to like be the most miserable. And like in those, in those, I don't know. I'm, I just like, I kind of like enjoy that because it's kind of like, kind of like just putting your like all your cards on the table at once and just saying like, oh, okay, this is what we got. And, like, see what happens. Whereas um, with shorter races, there's so many like little factors and mm-hmm. play and like who has a good day and mm-hmm. who, who's good at who's like whose skills happen to like line up better with the courses uh demands mm-hmm. things like that um yeah i like the longer stuff but uh yeah when i was doing a lot of toughest races i wasn't really training more specifically for them um maybe like maybe like a little bit more specifically for them but i'd say my that eight-hour kind of fitness range was uh, was and is the same to this day of uh, of how I train and stuff. And and do you think is you know you're famously really good friends with a lot of your competitors, John with Brian and and Hunter. Do you think that has 
has do you think you could have got more of a competitive edge to have not had that friendship or has that been a competitive edge or have you not have you rather chosen friendship over competitive edges um yeah i mean i'm like a really competitive person but i'm also i think i race out of a place of like joy and like fun instead of out of a place of like fear and anger so like having having those like positive relationships i think helps me more than having a relationship um with my competitors that's like uh, a spiteful or a negative one, whereas I'm like, oh, I really hate that guy, so I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna beat him. Um, I just like, like I really like that guy, but I still really want to beat him. So like it's like, and I see him on the course, and they're doing well or they're doing poorly, and like uh, either thing gives me like motivation. Whereas if I saw them on the course and I was like, um, yeah, just like totally negative towards the guy, I think that would just put me in a bad space. And and what's your view of um, what's happened to Tough, Tough Mudder? Do you, do you think it is changing? Do you think it will change um, those races significantly? Um, yeah, I mean, like, basically Tough Mudder got uh, acquired by Spartan, and now they're kind of in this whole global pandemic thing along with the rest of us. And I think that, like, I think that Tough Mudder is going to stay as, like, a kind of, uh, like, a group, a fun kind of group competition slash, like, event. And um, I think it's too bad that they, you know, drop, drop some of the competitive events, and especially World mm-hmm. Toughest Mudder. I really hope that World Toughest Mudder comes back in, like, the way that it always has been. Um, but I think the Tough Mudder normal events themselves, like, I think if they want to keep that as, like, a fun team building, you know, uh, kind of hang out with the, your friends type of event, and Spartan becomes, like, the competitive um, the competitive path and, like, the um, elite athlete kind of, you know, uh, thing, then I think that would work pretty well in terms of the whole scheme globally. And in fact, those two, I mean, Tough Tough Mudder has always marketed itself as being less competitive anyway. Barton, which yeah. is, yeah, so it, it does tie in well with that. And, and how, kind of what's your view on Spartan's courting of controversy? Do you think, um, do you, have you always supported the the burpees, the throwing of the uh, of the spear, and, and various things like that? Do you, do you like that element of the race, the the randomness of it that it creates? Because as as someone who's sat at home watching the ticker of what's happening at, at Spartan, I it always frustrates me that you can't you never get a a straight race because someone has some misfortune. Would, would do you like that element of it, or would you rather it be more standardized so that the best man wins on the day. Yeah. Uh, I, I really have no problem with burpees. Like, um, <laughs> if, if people want to like, if, if that's what Spartan wants their, you know, their penalty to be, then like, I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. I think I do. I've always had an issue with the spear throw. I just think it's, there's too many, um, 
kind mm-hmm. of like variables and unknowns and like inconsistencies with it. Um, like I've seen races be decided uh, at the spear throw with like perfect throws and the spears mm-hmm. just falling out or like, okay, or, like terrible throws that like, you know, terrible throws that somehow stick in mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I don't think spear should be something that sticks around, but, and I think it would be better if there was like a penalty loop uh, penalty or um, a time penalty or uh, the obstacle was designed in such a way that like if you fell off, you would have to like swim out and lose time that way. Like basically uh, some other way, but I also like have accepted a long time ago that it's Spartan, it's Spartan race, Spartan's race. It's like mm. their thing. So if they, if they want to, I don't know if they want to make you do jumping jacks as a penalty or if they want to make you stop and have to like whittle a fork out of a larger piece of wood as your penalty. Like they can really do whatever they, <laughs> whatever they want because it's their game. Um, and like, or, or throw, throw a say, newborn like, in, into a forest. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Classic Spartan style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, do I, do I agree with the spear? No, but like, have I accepted it? Yeah. Like, do I wish it was different? Yeah, but if it never becomes different, is it still a great race? Totally. So, yeah. And if you, if you look back on your career so far, I mean, if, if you were to take all the, the big races, how many positions do you think, if you'd have had, like, how many races do you think you've lost because of a mistake of yourself? And how many races do you think you've been hard done by by a spear? <laughs> Ooh, hard done by by a spear. Um, or, fa- or favored by a spear. I mean, to be fair, John John in yeah. the first Barton World Champs was was favored by a spear. I can't remember who he was neck yeah. and neck with, but um, he probably only won that one because of a spear. Yeah, like um, totally. I think. I mean, I think it all kind of comes out in the wash eventually. Uh, there's been, there's been races that I've won because of the spear and lost because of the spear, like you said, uh, has the spear cost me like tens of thousands of dollars? Yeah. But, um, I'd say it's probably cost me more than it's made me (laughs) overall. Um, but yeah, there's also like, like if someone falls off a Z wall, it's like, that's like totally fair game. That's like, that's like, Oh, you couldn't do the obstacle and you like, Mm. up. And I've, I don't think I've ever done that in a race. I've never like had a, a moment where I've just like either been physically unable or had like a mental slip up and like, you know, lost a race because I've screwed up on an obstacle. Whereas that has, I have thrown the spear, the tip has gone in and it's fallen out. Like that's happened like several times. And, um, that's super frustrating for sure. Uh, and, but and, like, that happens to other people too. So, And do you think, because I, I remember the the first World Championships in the UK, the mo- people weren't supposedly allowed to go in, on the course or test the course. And they seem to have yeah. just an array of these like wondrous obstacles that someone had dreamt up that didn't really know what it was, even as you were running up to it or like how what you were meant to do. Do you think think it's gotten out of hand, the fact that can 
potentially lose a race or or be massively penalised just because a steward can't explain to you well enough do this new obstacle that no one's ever attempted. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's definitely like a a bad position to be in. Um, OCR World Champs in uh, in the UK two years ago, that happened to me like 20, 25 times throughout the course of the I would just run out oh, to an obstacle and I would have, I would ha- like, I'd have no idea what to do. And like, your, your heart rate's maxed out and it's like, do I go over it or do I go under it? Do I lose my hands or my feet? Do I like, like, it's just, you have no clue. And, um, mm-hmm. and I lost a lot of time in that race, uh, just out of pure confusion. And then last year, like I had done the course once before and I like, I even just from doing the course once, I knew I knew the general idea on every obstacle, and it made a huge difference. Like I finished like I was like 15 seconds behind John in the end because I was like I wasn't losing all those all those times um, to like just having no idea what to do. So yeah, I think I think for a course, if a course comes out and says like, all right, here's 30 obstacles that like no one's ever seen, like that's that's just crazy in my mind. Like that mm-hmm. would never happen. But if yeah. like Spartan, Spartan has like 12 or 15 or 20 obstacles that are like pretty much all the same. And Spartan says, okay, now we have this 21st obstacle that is different, but here's a video of someone doing it and mm-hmm. it's like on their socials and this and that. Um, and you've seen like videos of people doing it and there's only one new obstacle. Like that's, I think that's totally cool. Cause like, I think new obstacles are fun and, um, there should be more of them, uh, but like, yeah, people should kind of have some semblance of an idea of what to do when they get up to it. And it, it yeah, the marshals, the marshals never like, uh, like it's great that people volunteer and I love them for it. Um, you know, sport wouldn't be where it is without them. However, you run up to an obstacle and like if you're the, you know, in the first heat of the day, all the all the marshals are super like they're a little timid and they haven't kind of gotten to their groove yet. And a lot of them just will stand there and not say anything. And you run up to them and you're like, what do I do? And they just kind of, like, they stare at you like a deer in the headlights and with like, this blank expression. And so then you start like fumbling your way through. <laughs> and then you come back, you come back on the course five hours later to like cheer on your, your buddies. And the marshals are like right there, like telling it, they, but then they've got it like dialed. And they're like, <laughs> person, like, okay, what you want to do is like, put your headband over your wrist and then like wrap your toe around the wire. And then like, you know, they've got like, they've got every little detail like figured out and they're being super helpful and super awesome. Um, but as the first person of the day to get there, you don't, you don't get that experience. So like, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a, bit of a change there. Now with, um, with there becoming fewer races and, and some of the prize pots reducing, can you see yourself moving more into ultra um, as you age, but even concurrently, like John, doing more ultra races while you're also doing obstacle? Yeah, I could see that. Um, I think so. I think that I would totally like to do that. There's a lot of cool ultra races. I mean, I've done done ultra racing in the past. I'm pretty in that 50 to 100 mile range. Like, I think I'm. Uh, yeah, pretty solid uh, ultra runner, mountain runner kind of guy. Um, 
I also could see myself like becoming a, you know, maybe an adventure athlete or someone who does more expeditions or more, uh, you know, routes or FTPs or, um, you know, first, first, like the first time this person has run this route or, mm. you know, negotiated this, this challenge or thing like that. So, um, yeah, I love OTR and I love competing. Um, but I also really just love challenging myself and, getting outside my comfort zone and going on adventures. Um, and so I can see myself doing more of that, maybe more like Arctic exploration things. I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. And would you, do, do, you, do you and Lindsay talk about things, challenges along those lines that you could do together? But do you see your careers growing side by side or do you think at some point you will divert into slightly different opportunities? That's a good question. I think that, um, I know that Lindsay really wants to open a cafe and like a bakery and, uh, you know, manage that and like make people lattes and, uh, kind of bake cool, tasty treats and things like that. But I also know that she's like, you know, an amazing athlete and like incredible competitor and someone who loves, you know, challenging themselves physically, um, as well. So, uh, I could see her, either going the cafe route or going the, you know, adventure kind of athlete route or doing a combination of the two where maybe um, still goes on rad adventures and uh, does some racing and sky racing, but at the same time, um, you know, makes tasty treats. Yeah. There's, all, there's, there's always a crossover between adventure, like being an incredible adventure athlete and wanting to open a coffee shop. <laughs> why, how many people do we know who are like brilliant at like OCR or ultra running or, or something else, but they also have a coffee shop as well? Do, do you remember the first 100 miler, John Starbucks? He was... <laughs> <laughs> and what about Bill, Bill Coffee Republic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. friend, Yeah. French runner pret a manger. <laughs> and has it, has it helped? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, right. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I think there's, like, I mean, people who, like, who race and run and bike and do these epic adventures, a lot of them love coffee, and uh, you obviously need to eat tasty treats to, like, feel yourself through, so it's like seems like such a natural kind of progression to your career. You're like, well... I love drinking coffee, so therefore, like, you know, do what you love kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, and, and, and I love talking about all my running. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how, like, coffee shops and stuff, they, they, there's, a, there's a crossover. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and has it been useful, the fact, do you think your results would have been different if you two hadn't been dating this whole time? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that, uh, Lindsay, uh, and myself kind of use each other in like a very symbiotic way where we, um, help each other and kind of talk to each other and help each other with our training plans and how to approach training, how to approach bracing, how to design our seasons, you know, everything. It's like having, uh, well, got like the best female obstacle racer in the world, like in my wheelhouse and whenever I need help or I need advice or something, um, we're always like there to give it to the other person. So that's, that's been like a massive, uh, you know, boon to both of our careers, I think. 
And if, if you were in a race and you, which obstacles would you tag Lin, Lindsay in for? That you, which ones do you think she's better than you at? Uh, which obstacles do I think Lindsay's better than me at? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think we're... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe the spear throw. <laughs> yeah, that's or the sandbag. One. I mean, she gets she gets the smaller sandbag, and she's like incredibly strong. So she just flies through that, like the sandbags and the buckets and stuff like that. Um, yeah, she's super strong with those those carry obstacles. And uh, and yeah. do you do a lot of training together? Yeah, we do. It's kind of intermittent. I mean, lately we've been doing our strength together a fair bit. Um, and we like we like to go mountain biking together or trail running together, but a lot of times also our training is like like we we do run at different speeds a lot of times. So sometimes it just doesn't work out. Like I'll I'll be doing like a three hour slow run and she'll be doing an hour long fast run or vice versa or something like that. But um, yeah, whenever we can, we try to try to line it up. And um, do you think you're do you think like old couples that when one of them dies, the other one gives up? Do you think you'll be in a similar situation where one of you retires from OCR? It's likely the other one will quite soon, or, or do you think you could both independently keep a passion and travel to them without the other? Uh, yeah, I think it would be harder, a lot harder, because I mean we get we get to do all our traveling together, which is awesome for um, for our relationship and for kind of our uh, lifestyle and a lot more fun traveling to a race with someone than just going on your own. Uh, however, that being said, if Lindsay said tomorrow that she's never going to do an obstacle race and that um, I would I would keep racing, um, you know, as long as I'm enjoying it, and it works out for me. And and how many more years do you think you've still got top of the field? Uh, I'd like to race for like another six or eight years. Yeah. There's a good good bit of time really, you're given wow, yeah. Seven years in. That's a good good career given that the sport only came about at the beginning. So uh, you couldn't have started younger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think if I had found OCR like a few in like two thousand eleven or something, that would have been that would have been cool because I would have had uh, you know, more of a influence on its direction at the, you know, at the beginning of the sport. Um, but I'm definitely glad that I found it when I did. And do you, do you think it will, because being in waves, it's, it's had a few difficulties as a sport. Do you think now that it is consolidating more, do you think that, that can potentially put it in a stronger position to grow? Or do you think it, it's going to taper off at a, a level fairly soon? I think the, uh, the like, kind of, um, open class like uh, weekend warrior type of uh, segment of OCR is going to stay kind of where it's at um, which is you know, awesome there's like a, like one of the biggest endurance sports in the world mm-hmm. um, in terms of participation numbers and I think that the I hope that the kind of elite side of things the you know the pro the um, competitive sides of things and all the age group categories, I think, I think, and I hope those will continue to grow in terms of popularity and in terms of participation. 
and do you, and and one of my big my, one of the things I've really noticed about the difference between OCR and, and ultra is that as an OCR athlete, they t people tend to race so much more often. And do you, is, is that driven by kind of a desire to actually train on the courses? Is that partly because of the need to kind of finance yourself as a professionals or do you think it's just part of the culture and because you get beaten up so badly in some OCR races? So um, do, do you think there are almost, there have been too many races and, and what do you think's driven people's desire to be racing almost every weekend? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you first get into the sport for the first couple of years, you're just so psyched on it. Like going to races is really fun and it's such a great community and there's so many like, like-minded people and you're like, oh man, I like found my tribe and it's like, in a sense, it's like addictive and you're like, oh, I'll just like, I'll race this weekend, I'll race next weekend and this and this and this. And, um, yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty common factor for people to do that. Then I think, as like you said, you just get like pretty beat up, or um, maybe injured, or maybe just a little burnt out. Then people start getting a little smarter about it and picking the races that you know work for them, or work for them in terms of you know maybe travel or ge geographical uh, proximity to home, or um, races that they just have heard are really awesome. Um, like maybe they've heard a course is amazing. I know. So uh, yeah, I think people start operating a lot, maybe too much, and then kind of uh, naturally kind of drop that number into a more, you know, reasonable, sustainable uh, frequency. And we've got a few a few questions from the uh, from Instagram. I put the picture of you with a dumbbell where you, you look practically naked, settled amongst ferns. So a lot of the questions are to do with, with your, your choice of attire and also your lovely blonde flowing locks. But the um, the one that get through the filter, first one is from Vicky um, Vicky Owen, and she she says genuinely um, she's struggling to chop wood. What can you do to build up to be a better wood chopper? Have you got any advice for her? Oh, a better wood chopper. Um, well, first of all, having like a good setup, like a good a nice big log to set your you know your log on to chop and um, having a good like, splitting axe, a proper splitting axe or a splitting maul makes a big difference. And then I'd say also having one that like matches your strength. Um, if you're a really strong person and you're used to swinging an axe, then you can get away with like a six pound um, axe head. But if you're like, if you're new to it or you don't have as much control, um, things like that, you could go with a smaller axe head and a shorter handle just so you it's not as hard to swing uh and then like really just kind of like you need to really get like the technique down which i'm sure you can watch a video on like how to swing an axe properly um it's kind of hard to explain it while speaking uh so yeah like get the technique down and then just really focus on that log when you swing it and um like look where you want the axe to hit and swing hard <laughs> I, f I feel that that was genuinely useful advice there. <laughs> about ma matching your axe to your strength is brilliant. I, d I wouldn't have even yeah. thought of it in those. That's brilliant. Yeah, and the other thing is having a sharp axe. Like a lot, of, like maybe some people think that a, a sharp axe you might be more like willing, like more likely to hurt yourself or like get cut by it. But having it's like having a sharp knife 
you're like less likely to cut yourself because you are like a, a better tool. Like you're able to kind of wield that tool more effectively and with more precision when it's sharper. So like having keeping your axe sharp. Now, question from James Hill. What change in your training has made the biggest difference over the years? Ooh. Change in my training. Um, I think that... I think that the biggest change would be to, like, listen to your body, I guess. I know that sounds, like, really nebulous and, like, not, like, a... Like, you want to hear like do more squats <laughs> but um, listening to your body is like the biggest thing because uh, I do a lot of my training based on like uh, how I feel and how I recover from um, previous workouts and a lot of times you can't there's no real like it's so hard to say like oh I'm going to be less recovered because I had a stressful day at work or so therefore I should like you know have an easier training day like um but there's so many factors that go into how your body's going to perform uh in training and in racing that like you can't really quantify and you can't you know learn from someone else so and are you listening that, like, for, is it generic tiredness is it for pain is it for stiffness what, what are the what are the noises that help educate you for all of those things um a lot of times like so i mean it's it's easy if you go out for a, for a training session, you feel awesome, you just, you know, smash it, looks great. Um, but, like, a lot of times I'll go out for, like, a hard training session that I've programmed and I'll be going out and I'll feel, I'll feel not good, right? I'll feel tired or I'll feel, you know, whatever, um, just, like, not up to it. So what I'll do in that case is I'll, I'll start my interval session after a good warm-up and I'll get a couple of intervals in and then I'll like look at my paces. I'll look at my, you know, my effort level and I'll look at my, um, like just see how I feel and how everything's going. And then having that like confidence to be like, today's not the day. And after two intervals, mm. you just go home and rest or to say like you do two or three intervals and things start kind of getting warmed up and everything starts moving a little better. And then you're like, you know what, actually it was just, I was just getting, you know, I was just, to start and I'm actually having a good day so having that like that vision and that kind of confidence to like have a really good honest look and say like yep today I'm just you know I'm just a little bit tired and I can do my workout or you know what today I am just too tired and I should I should rest and I should try again you know uh in a few days time at um that's like a that's a skill that I, I think it takes years and years to actually learn and it's mm. like really super beneficial um, to endurance athletes. Uh, yeah. 100%. Um, now, we've got a lot of questions mainly about the hair. So the big question is what shampoo do you use? <laughs> I, don't, I don't use shampoo. <laughs> no. Wow. Just, just yeah. Kind of Any hair products? Just fingers. Hair products? Yeah, anything like that, or is it all all natural? No, nothing. <laughs> no, I don't do anything. <laughs> I, mean, I, have, I have this theory that, like, um, that, like, yeah, just like 
cut my hair when it gets annoying and then just kind of keep rolling. So I don't. I haven't washed my hair. Like eight years. <laughs> yeah, every eight months I'll like shave it off. But um, with COVID, it's just lasted a bit longer. And then last one, can you ever see yourself going for a speed ascent of the actual Everest? Oh, that would be awesome. Um, I would love to climb actual Everest or another 8,000 meter uh, peak. Uh, I love being in the mountains and I love pushing myself and I love challenges. So it just seems like it would be so radical. Um, on the other hand, it's like really expensive and mm. it's really dangerous. And um, I know Everest has turned into a bit of a more of like a, a commercial kind of Disneyland experience than like an actual, you know, communing with nature, uh, ex, you know, adventure exploration type experience. Um, so there's kind of mixed feelings there. Where mm-hmm. like, on the one hand, it would be amazing, and on the other hand, it would be um, yeah, maybe not more. as <laughs> fulfilling as like doing a smaller peak that's a little less. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and being so candid. If uh, next time you make it in London, if you need a place to crash, give us a shout. And um, yeah, any any other questions, JD? No, no, I think we've covered everything. Perfect. Well, <laughs> thanks again. Good luck Sweet. with getting yeah. back in racing performance. And uh, let us know if there's anything we can help. Cheers. Yeah, thanks so much for the chat. It's been fun. Ah. 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 <laughs> what a lovely fella <laughs> he was a nice fella even even though clearly he hates that fucking javelin throw he's still <laughs> very 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 generous about it if that's if that's what they want to do it's completely up to them if they want to take away twenty thousand dollars from me <laughs> then it's their race it's their race i'm not saying they're wrong to do it it must be. Do you know what? It must be quite difficult, mustn't it, to, to to make a living in OCR and just to see it the way that it's going. Just the you know, so many OCR companies either closing down or mm. moving across to ultras, um, mm. and you know, a lot of the a lot of the sort of the, the the mixed athleticism that you need for OCR not quite being needed in 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 ultras. Yeah, true. That's because he's a good all round athlete. Yeah, but the, what's always amazed me is he's so fast, but how big he is! Like, cause he's if you look at John Album, John Album, if you met him on the street, John's functional fitness, like strong as you like per pounds, but you wouldn't look at him and think this guy's ripped. Whereas Ryan, he's a big dude for, you know, he's got big chest, and yet he can absolutely fly. Yeah, but. Yeah, it's 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 it'll be interesting to see what happens in ten years, twenty years, because well, I'll probably get older. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. But for people like Ryan, who are potentially in between two sports, because yeah. ultra is continually growing. But <laughs> while, while we say that, while also seemingly dying as well, <laughs> yeah, in the same way. Yeah, I mean, Corona's not done well for either. But in, but the I guess the difference is there isn't the money still in ultra yeah. that there is in OCR, and that's that's what OCR's been incredible for is even without having 
the number of participants as ultra races. Um, it's just got so much more cash in it. The interesting thing, isn't it, about someone... So that's the thing. Uh, the Alban physique versus the, the Ryan physique, isn't it? It's like, mm. what, what sports, like you say, a, a, a sort of a full-body functional sport, can you do outside of something like OCR that that would allow you to you, you'd normally think the next mm. thing was crossfit wouldn't you like there is like crossfit yeah. ocr but beyond that what is there like what you know the, the modern pentathlon <laughs> 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 yeah because even crossfit i associate crossfitters as as being even larger yeah, they're big, but they. But the thing is, and generally, they are terrible at the endurance thing. They're terrible mm. at the running, the things like that. Mm. You know? But they're probably what you know. What what people would lump under, you know, this is functional fitness in its prime. But you certainly don't get that level of sort of endurance, like running up a fucking mountain, for example. Mm. You know, <laughs> like it, it's almost as though he's kind of got the physique. Then the and and the crossover is just <laughs> a sport hasn't been invented. That that fits it, yeah. That fits the you know running up a fucking mountain, uh, you know doing all of these different things. You know it it, it, it it's uh, you know you know what I mean. Yeah, completely. It's, it's really interesting what he was saying about being able to train at a higher intensity and more. Because I I've I've always known that you can cycle for longer on a bike, which in some ways is less of an appeal because it just means it ups the top level that everyone else can do. Whereas at least in running. You've run so many miles and everyone's tired. Whereas um, I hadn't thought about that you can actually train more in, at a higher intensity rate on in cycling than to running. And that's really it's interesting. interesting. It's in, interesting what you're saying about when you're, when you're going up a hill and you're not sat down. Mm. It's replicating the, uh, the, the, the same movement as running. And I'd go, well, what, what, why, why don't you just ditch the bike? uh at that point um but yeah i think no impact no impact well that's the thing no impact isn't it yeah um and that's the thing i do you know what i hadn't really thought about that in terms of yeah i mean obviously i'm not running any sort of level of miles but um having to having and just in terms of what he's saying in terms of the time that you know um what 16 hours of running a week is mm. you know what a what a sort of a top end uh ultra athlete would would be doing but pulling is lazy pulling yeah. all the listeners lazy <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah exactly but for a cyclist that's nothing that's nothing you know it's just like you know because they they you haven't got enough uh intensity in there or enough endurance in there in order to do it which just means you showed it's fucking stupid being a cyclist well how what, what would a cyclist train in a week typically then i don't know it, it seems to be kind of ridiculous um all over the place. I don't know. I don't really know. Um, actually, let's get people to say, right, how many, right, all the cyclists, actually, this is a good way of getting them out of the woodwork. Uh, <laughs> we, do, we, have, we have a purge every now and then when we ask a genuine question and all of a sudden they start emerging. Um, I don't know. What was it? But, but what, someone who's solely cycling, cycling mm. is their only thing. Yeah, say you were Tour de France. We should, oh, my God. Oh, oh, you mean like top athlete? Like, yeah, athlete. yeah, exactly. Or even, because that's the, one of the, what's, the, what's the what's the split between uh, what's the ratio between hours uh, taking the drugs and hours actually? <laughs> well, that's that's why they can <laughs> train so much longer. 
hours running away and hiding from uh, the, what's it called, testers. <laughs> yeah, so because I mean, I know Iron Man. If you're training for an Iron Man, you can train twice a day, rotate with the one you're not doing. So, and, be and crossfit, to... crossfit athletes do that as well. Crossfit athletes, they you know, they they can train you know, uh, uh, what's it called, like six seven hours a day. Mm. Uh, you know, because it's all completely functional. But then they haven't got that endurance thing. They haven't got the endurance uh, aspect to it. And I think it was uh, that, that was the thing I was saying about uh, uh, Ryan reading the different articles. You were saying, you know, when he's uh, <laughs> when he's hit his level, you know, uh, you know, his peaking kind of running, then he'll get on the bike uh, to recover, um, but still go in, a ten- in an intensity that most of us would would struggle with. And that's what I find really fascinating about him is that, you know, we, we've, we've mentioned that he is a heavy build and yet he does so well at the 24-hour races. And in my mind, I assumed it would be the lighter people that can yeah. carry on going for that long because you're carrying less weight. And yet, you know, he really made toughest minor his own. You talk uh, the, what I, what, the thing that I really liked. I actually asked, I've made some notes, um, but the thing that I really liked was he's talking about just sticking to the key thing about that aerobic engine. Build the aerobic engine, mm. and that that is the the main thing that kind of you know just drives everything else. That you know he'll introduce other ideas into doing it and, and and things like that. Um, but really, is that aerobic engine that just keep building and building and and, and is the sort of the mainstay bit, and that's very boring. That's very boring yeah. for what people want to hear. Yeah. But, you know, it, it goes to show, doesn't it, that actually, you know, that his, he has a kind of a total fitness aspect to it that really, that, that really works for him um, and gives him that, that, that advantage. It's amazing in, in how many years he's raced. I can't genuinely think of a big mistake he's made. Like a oh, really? place-costing mistake. Yeah, because think... There must be one time that you just slip, because... Like not ringing a bell or something like that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Even, because it's not necessarily making mistakes, because you can sometimes just have a bad bit of equipment or a bit of unlucky bit of wet something that you weren't expecting, a bit of mud in your hands that came come well, see, through. That's the, thing, that's the thing with OCR, isn't it? It's like little things like, like that, that, and it's the same with triathlon. It's like in, in an ultra, when you're running, there's very little to go wrong. I mean, there's mm. very, very little to go wrong, you know, even if a, like a, a, a shoelace snaps or, or, or something like that. It's just can't, but when you have like, like mechanical failures or something as simple as, you know, a, a bit of equipment failing and you're relying on something else, mm. it's, I, 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 mentally, I, it feels as though your destiny is, is separate from you. It's like it's taken away from you. And that, yeah. and that at the time, that's, it, that must be fine, but that must be really disheartening for the next time you do it and you have you have you have to have a certain mental fortitude mm. to go i will place my trust in the equipment that i am given and in the stewards who are gonna you know tell me how to get across this thing and in how you know there's, there's just so many variables that i think just turns it into something from the you know the 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 um almost the ease of doing it something like an ultra where you just have to run forward to something where there are all these different variables in place that you have to place all your trust in and, and you get right. It just, it, it, it feels as though it's a much harder thing to do mentally. Yeah, 
yeah, and you know, as as we've mentioned the spear throws, I remember one ACR champs, the one Spartan champs, I did see a spear go straight through, and that doesn't count. I thought you say straight through a steward. <laughs> straight through a volunteer. That's probably how they felt, but I mean that is, and that what do you then do? Because there's more than one spear throw in the Spartan world champs. If your first one is essentially a perfect throw and it goes straight through the middle and doesn't stick in it, just, you've just got to, you get to try the same thing again, knowing it's just that much It just feels as though it's like a real waste of your time to, of something to master. It, yeah. it feels like, like if, you're, if you're training for running or you're training for cycling, and think, at least there's like multiple uses for it. You're being asked to train for something that is outside the normal sphere of what you may be using in everyday life. But even if you've trained to perfection, that doesn't mean yeah, you're going to get it. Absolutely. All yeah. you're doing is you're decreasing the probability of it going wrong, and that's all you're doing. You're giving yourself yeah. a better shot, all things being equal. But like you say, someone who doesn't know anything could rock up and just throw it, and it could be... It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> well, well, that was uh, that was the wonderful Ryan. It's not often we do OCR, actually, is it? It's been a while since we've had a good OCR. It's been, it's been a while since we've had someone who's a runner, I'll tell you that. <laughs> as, he, as he now is. But um, if there are any guests you'd like us to interview, do badders, then do message uh, david at badboyrunning.com or you can tag us in the Facebook group. And please, um, please, please know, just because you've suggested them doesn't mean that we're ignoring it. As we keep telling people on multiple occasions, all of the big ones who you keep suggesting, they've all been asked. If, we <laughs> if they haven't been on, they either hate us or they can't be asked. That's it. Just yeah. assume that they hate us or they cannot be bothered. Um, and the, it's, it's, it's quite rare that they can't be bothered to hate us. They, they <laughs> always bring the energy for that. <laughs> <laughs> they could be they could be bothered enough to send back an abusive message of some kind <laughs> it's i can't remember what we it seems like ages since we've done an outro to a podcast i can't remember what we normally say now i guess it's thanks for listening we've got the um remember rate us subscribe and leave us a review yeah and uh, and get in the facebook group you can see articles. In the Facebook group, David doesn't. David keeps sending. David keeps sending me um, uh, memes and stuff that are already in the Facebook. Group. <laughs> <laughs> what we need to talk about on the next podcast. <laughs> but yeah, and we will. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. Please like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye 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 Admit I was a clone to be messing around But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town Come back Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy <laughs> <laughs>